You can open your Bible to the book of 1 Samuel. And as you see printed in your bulletin on page 9, this will be page 238 and page 239. We'll be in chapter 16. The book of 1 Samuel is in what we refer to as the Old Testament of the Bible. And as you uh, may be aware or not, we are starting a new series And this will be our winter-spring series, and so we'll be looking at the life of David, which is recorded for us in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And um, historically, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel were just one book, um, but we break them in two. And um, we'll be looking at the life of David that is given to us in that book up until, we'll look at that all the way up until what we'll call, I guess it's March or Holy Week as we head into, no wait, yes. No, April. Easter is in April. The pastor obviously should know that. And we'll take a break as we go into um, Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, and then the Sunday uh, of Easter. And then we'll come back after that and pick back up where we left off with the life of David all the way through the month of May. Okay, so that's what we'll be doing for our winter-spring series So by way of of introduction this morning, let us look at chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. It's found in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. 
And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Let me pray and ask the Lord to teach us his word today. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would do a miracle, and by miracle that you would soften hardened hearts this morning, that you would prepare our hearts as good soil to receive your word, such as the seed goes into soil and produces a fruit, that we too would leave here changed people. Would you do this for your name's sake, we pray. Amen. He didn't come out or excuse me, he, he did come out kind of skinny, and they didn't think he was strong enough. And the headline t- titled, Why Tom Brady Was Overlooked in the NFL Draft and Why It Was More Than Luck That Led Him to the Patriots, we read of what went on behind the scenes and the Patriots getting arguably, and it cringes me to say this, but arguably the best quarterback to ever play in the NFL in the sixth round of the 2000 NFL draft. If you don't know what the NFL draft is, that is totally fine. This is where the best of the college elite are drafted into the professional football league. And if you've ever seen an NFL draft, you know that the first two rounds is where the cream of the crop are drafted. This is the best talent, perhaps maybe even into the third round, the best talent. By the time you get past that, it it drops off severely, relatively speaking. Still incredible athletes, but as far as teams are concerned, as you go to that fourth, fifth, and even sixth round pick, maybe... Maybe this will work out. And so teams are constantly putting all of their efforts into those first one or two picks. And somehow, somehow, what will go on to be known as the best quarterback to play the game in the NFL was overlooked and drafted in the sixth round by the New England Patriots. Why? And the simple answer is because of what they saw. Because of what they saw, no one was interested in Tom Brady at the time. And because he just didn't look like an NFL quarterback, as one commentator said, nobody wanted to take the chance of drafting him. Don Banks of, the, uh, of Sports Illustrated said he, Brady, didn't have the prototypical NFL body. He came out kind of skinny, and they didn't think he was strong enough. Vic um, Carucci of the NFL.com added that Brady, quote, looked slow, and he was, and he still is. But not looking the part would actually fall into the Patriots' favor as every team for five straight rounds would ignore Brady and snagging him late into the sixth round This move by the Patriots would lead to nine AFC championships and six Super Bowl titles over the next 20 years. And if you don't understand what that means, and it's totally fine if you don't, that's unheard of. 
It's unheard of. And perhaps leading to, and this pains me to say this too as a Bears fan, one of the best franchises in NFL history, the New England Patriots. I know there are several in here who are happy that I'm saying that. But why? Again, Brady didn't look the part. Much of this is being discussed upon the eve of his retirement over the past couple weeks. But as we think about this, we see that there's a problem with the way that people see. And it's not with their eyes. Interesting enough, the reason the Patriots wanted him that year, as the article continues, wasn't because of his strength, obviously, but because of his actual mental makeup, which is really interesting to read about. If you want to do that, you can after the service. It was the way that Brady could go in and lead a team. This is why they took him. But no one saw it. And if they saw it, it didn't matter to them. And because of that, the New England Patriots are saying, thank you very much. We'll take him in the sixth round. Perhaps the best quarterback to ever play in the NFL. As we begin our series in the life of David this morning, we begin with the call of David. I don't know what you know about David, what you think about him, but David holds a pretty high watermark for the Bible, for Israel, for the people of God. He's kind of a celebrity in the Bible, if you will. But much of what has gone wrong for Israel up to this point as we enter into the time that David was called is that Israel themselves, well, just to put it frankly, they don't see very well either. That is, they have made decisions for themselves, as we'll see, based on the way that the world makes decisions. And how does the world make decisions? Superficially, sometimes. Visually, sometimes, by appearances, sometimes. And this is not working out well for Israel, as it often doesn't work out well for us, too. And instead of trusting God, what they long to what? Trust themselves. And that's where the problem of our vision comes in, is that we trust that we know what is best for us. And that, in turn, is equated to what it is we see on the outside of things. But as we'll learn, God is different, and he sees different than us. As we continue in this series, and as we look this morning at the call of David, we see God in his faithfulness and grace, how he is the one that is going to provide for his people when his people cannot provide for themselves. And it's not going to come, though, in the way that you and I might expect. God will pick one of his own choosing, a man after his own heart, one that everyone, everyone overlooked. But who would go on to be Israel's greatest king and lead Israel into a time of prosperity like no other? It's the life of David that we are beginning this morning. And so by way of introduction, I want to look at two things this morning as we begin this series, and that is why Samuel grieves, as we read in this passage, and why Samuel can hope. Why Samuel grieves, if you're taking notes, and why Samuel can hope. And for you young disciples here, I want you to listen for something in our sermon this morning. I want you to listen for what is similar about Israel in this passage and Adam and Eve 
as it relates to the forbidden fruit that they were tempted with and ate. So you listen for that. What is similar in our passage this morning about, about Israel and about Adam and Eve as it relates to the forbidden fruit that they were tempted with and ate. Let's begin with this first one, why Samuel grieves. In chapter 16, we read as, as, as it opens up that, Sam, that the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from king, being king over Israel? Why is Samuel sad here? Why is he grieved? Well, the reason he is grieved is because of Saul's failure as king over Israel, whom the text says the Lord has rejected. All right, like any introduction to a series, we kind of need to know the main characters. So who's Samuel, by the way? Samuel is the name of this Old Testament book that we're studying this winter spring. And though he only makes a brief appearance in the beginning, he and the book mark a major transitional period in the life of Israel. And that transitional period is this time that, was, that happened by the, well, during the judges to the time where Israel became a monarchy or had kings. Samuel himself was a judge. In fact, he's the last judge of this time that God raised up over Israel during the time of the judges. And Samuel was also a prophet of Israel. So he's a judge and he's a prophet. And what was a prophet in this day? And I want you to think about a prophet as simply a mouthpiece for God. And as God's mouthpiece, he is the one then that anoints a king over Israel, the one that God chooses. And that's where we find Samuel in chapter 16, grieving still over what has become of this king, King Saul, whom he anointed. Okay, well, who is Saul? Another character, major character in the book here. Saul was the first king over Israel whom Samuel anointed back in chapter 10. Before Saul comes on the scene, Israel is a mess. And we read about this in the book of Judges. In the very last verse of the book of Judges, before we get to 1 Samuel, it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And as we come in then to 1 Samuel, this is a bit of the political landscape. And so the people of God cry out for a king like the other nations. And what's important to note uh, by way of background, is not that they wanted a king, but why they wanted a king. And why they wanted a king was so that he would go out and fight their battles. That he would protect them. In other words, instead of looking to God for their protection and their security, they placed it in having a king. They actually placed it in being and looking like the other nations. And appearances. We want what they have. When, if you've done any just casual reading of Scripture up to this point, I don't know, we can think about Moses and the Red Sea, right? defeating the entire Egyptian army. There's Jericho, it's a good one. Right? The Lord fighting for his people, protecting his people. It's an Old Testament theme. Why would they want a king? Why would they want to put their trust in somebody, a human being, when they belong to the God who can part the waters, who can bring down buildings at will? 
It's the question that keeps running in our minds as we follow Israel. What is their issue with trusting? And, and, and it's a picture that the Bible wants to give us over and over of the human heart. This is not just their problem. It is our problem. It is a problem of appearances. We don't see well. We get afraid. We, we don't trust well. And so we reach for things that we think are going to bring us security. And this is what Israel is doing. And so they ask for a king. And the most interesting part of this is God allows it. He allows it. And this is how Saul comes on to the scene. He's the first king. But there's something not completely right about this king, and this is important to understand in order to understand what's happening in chapter 16 too. See, Saul was Israel's choice for king, not God's choice, though God allowed it. In fact, God tells Samuel after the the people demand a king, he says, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me. They have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. It's the word of the Lord. As I said, though, what's important is not that they wanted a king, but why. They wanted their safety, their protection to come from someplace other than God. And what they thought was best was what they saw all around them. And that was to have a king like the other nations. And why did they pick Saul? Well, as we read this morning, because he looked like a king. Right? What did you hear over and over? He was taller than everybody else. He fit the description. And this is, what, this, this is where Israel begins to fall into its old patterns again. They wanted somebody who was strong or had the appearance of strength. They wanted somebody who was courageous, who would go out and fight for them. And Saul fit that description. And so as he is being anointed in the chapters before this, we hear this chant of long live the king by Israel. It is a second description um, of Saul's appearances and what they see. Is he strong? Is he courageous? Does he fit the role of king in his appearances and perhaps other kings around us as well? Does he look like other kings around us? Saul is the people's choice here, not the Lord's, though he allows it. And like anything God's people do that is motivated by fear and trust in him, it usually doesn't work out well. How many times have you made a decision in your life, if you're honest about it, based out of fear? If you're afraid of something. So you make a decision based out of that. And how many times would you say that things went well? And sometimes there's good fear to respond to, so I don't want, I'm not just saying that there's not, there's only bad fear. I mean, it's, it's good, it's good to want to get a, a home alarm, security home alarm system because you don't want your house to be broken in again, right? That's good. But other times that fear causes us to make choices that don't work out and even have consequences. Does anybody in here know who Giovanni Carmazzi is? 
And if you do, we probably have bigger problems that we need to talk about. He was one of the best-looking quarterbacks in the 2000 draft. He went second overall to the 40, San Francisco 49ers, way before Brady. The 49ers thought he looked the part. He had the strength. He had the speed. He had the arm, arm strength, the whole bit. They signed him to a million, over a million-dollar contract like they would with anybody in that day. But it just didn't work out. As a matter of fact, Carmazzi never played one game in the NFL. It was one of the biggest flops in their history. See, he looked the part, but no one wants to draft a quarterback that doesn't look the part. It is a decision made of fear. It is a decision made on appearances. What is it that we think is going to bring us and give us the things that we want? It's interesting how our hearts produce and respond to fear in all kinds of different arenas based on what we see. This is Israel as they desire a king and as they select Saul. They are looking at the nations that surround them and think we need to be like them. This is where we will have and find our true identity and security and all that we want as a nation. And they are telling the Lord, the same God who has demonstrated over and over his ability to protect them, we don't want you. Saul or Samuel, they are not rejecting you. They are rejecting me. We don't want you. We want the guy who looks tall and strong like all the other kings. Give us him. And so God does, and like the 49ers and perhaps maybe some of our own bad decisions that we make out of fear, right? It doesn't turn out so well. It doesn't turn out so well. As King Things start out promising for Saul. Uh, he led Israel to victory over certain foes in the area. And for a period, it seemed like Israel was, go- going, you know, was thriving. As a matter of fact, it's going so well that Samuel bids farewell in chapter 12. But unfortunately, something begins to change. King Saul looked good in the battlefields and on the throne, but there was something wrong internally with his heart that Israel didn't or couldn't see. And, we read, and as we read it, we see it develop over time. And what we learn is that while Saul has everything one might look for in a king in appearances, he doesn't have what is most important to God and what should be most important to God's people. And that is a heart that learns to truly desire God over anything else. Over winning battles as a king, over being successful, uh, over uh, even the favorable cheers and approval ratings of the crowds that shout, long live the king. And so in chapter 13, God rejects Saul's king and has Samuel tell him that his kingdom will not continue. That's a bad day. That the Lord has already sought out a man after his own heart, a man of his own choosing, and that he will be king over God's people because you, Saul, the text says, have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Saul will actually plead with Samuel and ask for his kingdom back. He'll repent even and offer sacrifices, but it won't matter because God does not desire what the external works of our obedience, if what? If our hearts are not in it. If our hearts are not for him, 
In other words, you can look the part, but looks only go so far in God's kingdom. Maybe that's a good, maybe that's a good word for us at this point today. What God desires is poverty of spirit. Humility, a broken and contrite heart, as we will see. But that's not Saul. And so God has rejected him as king, and Samuel grieves over this, and that's where we find Samuel in chapter 16, verse 1. Samuel is grieving over the loss of Saul as king, the promises that he attached to Saul, and what it would mean for Israel. I'm sure there's confusion about what God was doing and what he's doing and his role in all of this. He is grieving over the confusion even, we know, of the words that he received from his mother, Hannah. Oh, who's Hannah? Another key figure in this book, although she only shows up at the beginning. Hannah is Samuel's mother. And this book, 1 Samuel, actually opens up with her. And she is barren at this point in time. And the Lord gives her a child. And she sings this song in chapter 2 and rejoicing over what the Lord has done because it's bigger than herself. It says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And what she says in the song is part of it. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. I can only think about how many times Samuel probably heard his mother singing that over and over and over. And then here he is, a judge, a prophet for God, anointing Saul. But here is what has happened. And if you're, if you're entering into the story at this point where Samuel is grieving in this way, you are probably thinking the way that he's thinking, what, what happened? What is wrong? And my assumption is that for you this morning, there have been times when you have felt or experienced that same hopelessness. All of us come in here and from different places in life, right? We come in here grieving something. Hurt by someone or some other thing. Life has not worked out the way that you want it to work out, perhaps. Maybe you come in here disenchanted by a world that you thought would deliver on its promises, but it it hasn't. You're not where you want to be in life. Perhaps like Samuel, our hope at times is also misplaced. Maybe we don't see things the way God sees them, and in those moments of grief and desperation, God is asking you to trust him, though it is hard to do so, though you can't see it. Maybe he is at work among you, but you can't see it. Because as we leave this first point, understanding why Samuel is sad and perhaps hopeless, we are also reminded that God never leaves his people in this place of despair and hopelessness. See, as right as it is for Samuel to grieve, it is not right that Samuel stay here. For hopeless grief and lament is not biblical grief and lament. Biblical grief and lament is done under the umbrella of hope. Because why? 
God is good. And he is the one who provides for all that his people need. And this gets to our second point. Why Samuel can be hopeful. In the second part of verse 1, and I promise we're going to move much faster. God says to Samuel, get up. It literally has the, 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 the tone, pull yourself together, man. Get up. He says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have what? Look at it in, in the text, verse 1. I have what? I have provided. I have provided for myself a king among his sons. This is why Samuel can hope. This is why he, like all of us, are never left in our despair and our grieving because God is the one who truly provides for us in all, that we, in all the ways that we need. And this is what plays out in the rest of this account. As God might be saying to many of us this morning, what he is certainly saying to Samuel as we move through here, as he tells him to go, is that, Samuel, you have placed your hope in other things. You have placed your hope in a king. And what I need you to do is place your hope in me. Your grieving good things with Samuel's hopes and dreams don't come from men. They come from me, God is saying to him, because I'm about to show my goodness. And in so doing, I will expose Israel's failures to trust me in the first place, which is what has gotten them in this situation. By picking a king of my own choosing, a king who is currently not thought of, by picking a king who is overlooked, who is a nobody out in a field tending sheep right now. That's who I'm going with. Get up and go. Get to Bethlehem. Verse 2, the narrative picks up as God tells Samuel to go and anoint one there who he has chosen and provided as king over Israel. And of course, um, Samuel understands the, 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 the political nature of, of his times. There's already a king, Saul, which he anointed. And if this king finds out that I'm anointing somebody else, he's going to want to kill me. And he's right. He probably will. But when God tells you to do something, you don't have much choice. And so perhaps maybe uh, to kind of give Samuel some peace, he, he tells Samuel to go offering a sacrifice, not fully disclosing the reason he's there to go see Jesse and his sons. And so Samuel does, and he arrives at the town where the elders are there, and, and they see him coming, and what does the text say? <laughs> They're afraid. And, and they should be, right? Like anytime you saw a prophet coming, it wasn't necessarily because maybe you won the most faithful of the month award. Prophets coming often meant something is wrong. You know, what, what did we not do? Um, but that's not the case. So they asked, do you come peaceably? And Samuel says, I come peaceably. Where is Jesse? Bring, consecrate your, your community. Here we go. We're going to make some sacrifices to the Lord. I need to see everybody. Verse 6, when they came, he saw Samuel. Or excuse me, when he came, he, being Samuel, was this, looked. And where did he look? He looked at Eliab, the oldest son of Jesse, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. We've overdone it in the service already intentionally, but to look and see uh, the root of that word is used over eight times in this short little text. Right? This is what God wants us to understand about ourselves and, and him. And here we have it again. Jesse looked at Eliab and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And what do you think he saw? That made him conclude, surely this is the Lord's anointed. 
He saw someone taller. He saw someone stronger. He saw someone who looked like a king. And it's at this point that we should be scratching our heads thinking, right, I think we've seen this before, (laughs) right? I think we've seen this before. This is exactly how Saul was chosen as king back in chapter 9 that we just briefly went over. Again, it's not wrong. It's not wrong for kings to be tall or strong or even good looking. What's wrong is to pick someone because they are. Which is what the people did. And see what's happening in verse 6 of our text. And the selection of Saul as king by the people uh, right, is the old story of humanity that is still with us today. And that is we think we know what's best. We think right, we know what we need and how to best provide for ourselves. But the reality is, is we don't and we can't. But only God can. What Israel has done up to this point and what Samuel is about to do again in verse 6 is commit the exact same sin of their parents, Adam and Eve. And what did they do? They judged by appearances. Who looked upon the fruit that the serpent offered, right? The fruit that God said, don't eat of this tree and its fruit. And they said, it looks good to me. We know what's best for us. I mean, listen to the words in Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and here it doubles again, that it was what? The light to the eyes. And that the tree was was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Done. Done. As one pastor mentor says, he said, the fruit should never have reached their mouths. In this moment, they deserved to die as soon as their hand actually what reached for the fruit in disobedience, which is also actually, though, where, where God's grace and mercy begins for us as well. We actually shouldn't have a Bible after Genesis 3, 6, and God would be just to do so but he didn't. And that grace, friends, in the garden continues to run all the way through history and into Samuel in our text this morning, even as he looks over Eliab and thinks, surely this is the Lord's anointed. No. Samuel, that's not how I work. In other words, God is different than us. God is different than us. He looks at things differently. He sees different things than we do, right? He looks at the heart. He looks at what is internal. And so God says to Samuel in chapter 7, or in verse 7, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. And rejected him here doesn't doesn't, doesn't carry salvational, you know, salvific terminology with it. This is all about anointing him as king. Don't think about him as being cast out uh, from all eternity. This is all about uh, anointing him as king. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, God not only cares about the external appearances of our hearts marked out by obedience, which Saul had at times, but what we learn that he cares for the internal formation of our hearts marked out in motive, humility towards one another, and genuine love of God that makes those acts of obedience true and good. 
That's what God cares about. So Jesse parades all of his sons out, and none of them are the Lord's anointed. If Samuel, you know, if I'm Samuel, I'm sitting here thinking, is this some kind of joke that the Lord is playing on me? But then Samuel begins to stop and begins to stop living out of only what it is that what he can see. And he begins to trust the Lord. He said, well, maybe all of Jesse's sons aren't here because God said he's here. And it's really just, it's wonderful to see this happen for Samuel. Verse 11, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, no, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping sheep. And that really says, it doesn't even, he doesn't, he's a nobody. He doesn't need to be here. And by telling you he's keeping sheep, you should know that he's not who you're looking for. And what does Samuel say? Go get him. And he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy, not a word I'm too familiar with, and had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And just like that, we're introduced to David. The one God provides. A taste of his faithfulness to God's people. The one who will go on to be the greatest king in Israel's history. A man who will write almost half of the book of Psalms. A great leader for sure and one who loves the Lord. And a figure in history that we are still talking about today. But he comes to the scene as a nobody. His own father didn't even think of him as an option, but God is in the business of what? Raising up nobodies. Those we overlook for his glory and his namesake. It's the humor of God to anoint the greatest king in Israel's history this way, and that's the point. It's not about appearances, is it? It's not even about David. It's about God's faithfulness to his people and what he's doing and will continue to do. Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? How long will you not trust me? Go to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. We as God's people, we will always underestimate God's faithfulness to us, his goodness to us, and his power in our lives. And and, and in some way, in a weird sense, that's actually hope for us this morning because it never deters him from working. Our underestimating God never stops him from being faithful to us. And God is always faithful to people who don't see very well. That's your good news this morning. That's my good news this morning. Having the fuller picture even of God's story today and pulling back from this text, how much more can we say that this morning? Because it won't be David who is God's ultimate faithfulness, right? 
It won't be David who is Israel's prize. It won't be him who saves Israel. David's greatest legacy is not his kingship. But what? The one who would come after David, Jesus, the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. And he will bring salvation to his people. The grace of God then that runs from the garden to Samuel to David actually continues to come to us this morning in Jesus Christ, who is our true king. Which means we, like Samuel, no matter where we find ourselves this morning, can be hopeful even amongst the sadness and sometimes hopelessness that we experience in this life. But guess what? God always provides. He always provides. This is why Samuel grieves. This is why Samuel can be hopeful. And this is our introduction to the life of David as we continue on this winter spring Two notes that we are always going to keep before us as we go through this series is God is always the main character of the story. This is the first one. God is always the main character of the story, not David. As we've seen uh, this morning by way of introduction, David came from obscurity only because what God, God's grace to him in Israel. Which is why the series is called The Life of David, Learning to Live Out of the Grace of God for His Glory. And so we want to read the Old Testament and the life of David primarily as a way to see God's grace to his people. How he is the one, what, providing and caring for his people so that we will learn to trust in him more and more as his people today. He is the main character of the story, not David. So that'll be the first thing we're carrying, carrying with us. The second thing that we're carrying with us is that David is always going to point us to Jesus. David is always going to point us to Jesus. It'll be easy at times to want to look at David and say, we need to be like him or be like David. Matter of fact, a a, a great time for that is coming up next week as we look at David and Goliath. And some of those ways will be in his obedience and character, qualities that we should desire to emulate and things we should pursue, right? But there will also be qualities, right, of David where he fails as king and he shows us that what we actually need a better king, This is a spoiler alert, and I apologize for this, but David's kingship ends poorly. And it's important by way of introduction that we hold not just the great things of David in one hand, but we hold his what? His failures right next to him. After Easter, we're going to read a story about a woman named Bathsheba and her husband, excuse me, Mm, excuse me. Okay, I'm good. Her husband, Uriah. All right, excuse me. And in that story, David is going to lie. He's going to covet. He's going to steal. He's going to murder. He's going to commit adultery. That's half of the Ten Commandments right there. That's a bad day. We need a better king. So we are going to march through this series holding both of those acts together. And see, when I say that, and maybe this question comes to mind as well, it's always been strange to me that David is said to be a man after God's own heart. Oh, you didn't have to do that, thank you. I really am concluding here. Thanks. It's, it's been confusing to me to hear that that he is a man for God's own heart, yet we see how his life played out. 
It's not, it's not that great. And, and maybe like you, you know, if you've grown up around the church, you've only heard the good stories of David and not the bad ones, I don't know. Maybe you wondered the same. Why is David so great? What does it mean to be someone after God's own heart? That's a question that I'm actually after this series, and maybe you are too, and so I invite you to come back. But one of the things, as we leave here, that we'll find in David is that David actually prepares us for Jesus. David prepares us for Jesus. And so, yes, we're going to need a better king than David, which is why David will always point us to Jesus. But here's my question as we end here. Are we going to see him when he arrives on the scene? When Jesus shows up, are we going to have the right eyes to see God's true anointed? One who certainly comes in obscurity. One who comes to us not as a king, born in a lowly manger, but perhaps even worse, dies in one of the most humiliating ways that any king could ever die. By crucifixion. Will we have eyes to see him when he comes? Or will we be looking for something different? Something better? My prayer for us in this series is that the Lord in his grace and mercy will prepare us to see and to meet Jesus through the life of David that we might see him more clearly and long to follow him as our true king. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Samuel and this book. Thank you for Hannah. Thank you for Saul. And we thank you for David. And what we thank you most for in these people is how they bring us Jesus. How they point us to Jesus. How they proclaim his beauty and wonder, his salvation, his kingship in ways that none of us could ever think to write about or come up with. This is your story. So we ask that as we continue to travel along looking at the life of David in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, would you and your wonderful grace and mercy continue to reveal yourself to us. Show us you are, your beauties and your wonders, that we may see you and long to follow you all of the days of our life. Would you do this for your glory, we pray. Amen.